Amen. You may be seated. This is the gospel. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the power of the cross. The cross does not represent defeat. You say, but he died. Oh, my friends, that's the great power of God's love, that he would die for us. He did not remain dead. He was laid in a tomb and he rose again, saying, I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to take it up again that you may be forgiven. Amen? Amen. That is what we've been singing. I hope you have your outline. If you don't have an outline, please lift your hand, and these kind gentlemen will make sure you have one. If you've joined us online, the outlines are available on our website, and we would encourage you to do that. We study the Bible, and as we study the Bible, we want to be able to have notes to be able to go and to look as we go. And I want to encourage you, if you've never done this before, I want to encourage you to take home the notes and look back through them. Any teacher will tell you, if you will go review whatever the teacher taught in class that day, if you will go review it even one time, it sticks so much deeper in your heart. I want to encourage you to do that. Go back and read it. It's better than than a lot of things that you can do, but I want to encourage you to do that. Some of you, I want to encourage you To go back, I put a lot of references here, and you can get more out of this sermon through the week if you will go back and look up those references and allow the message of each point to find its way into your heart that much more as you see the biblical basis for what we are teaching and what we are saving. So this morning we are going back. We want to look at one verse that has to do that we studied last week, and that is where we are going this morning. Notice this, the Lord's Supper, saving the best for last. Now, I believe everybody in this room has been to see a fireworks show. I I believe that some of you have uh, been to places where it was quite a great fireworks show. Um, I, I just have to say I feel bad for y'all because I doubt you've seen a fireworks show like Marcy and I saw. When we lived in Marseille, France, it was the most ridiculous spectacle you could ever possibly imagine. It, and I see Alex laughing because he has seen that fireworks show and several of others. There is a two-and-a-half-mile-long port, and they would put up barges in the middle of the port, 3,000 sailboats in the area. So it's just a port for sailboats, not ships, uh, just a port for sailboats. And pedestrian areas all around, over a half a million people gather every Bastille Day, which is July 14th, some of you knew that, Um, Bastille Day. They get together and celebrate the day they tore down a prison. So anyways, they, uh, they celebrate, Bastille Day, and the fireworks show goes on. It starts at about 11 o'clock, and sometimes it will go on for 45 minutes. Um, it just goes and goes and goes, and then the end of it, the end of everybody just waits for the end of it because it's so ridiculous. It's so over the top. It, you just stand there and you see a whole crowd, half a million people in unison, just cheer because it's just amazing. You kind of wait on the grand finale. I mean, the whole thing's pretty good, but when you get to the grand finale, it is incredible. Well, this morning, I want us to think a little bit along those lines. I want us to think about the grand finale that is coming for those who are in Christ. I want us to think about the massive celebration, 
the glorious eruption of great rejoicing and glory for those who have discovered the power of the cross, the redemption that is found in Jesus. And so this morning we come to look at this great passage. Now, for those of you that are new to us, we've been studying the Lord's Supper. We've been studying why do we do this? Why do we get together and have call a supper a, a little morsel of bread? Why do we call that a supper with a cup? A little thimble full of grape juice. Why, why, why do we call this a supper? Well, we've, we've been looking into that. What are God's purposes for this? We've already mentioned one of the purposes of this this morning in that some of you have written in or some of you have called and said, man, this is helping me want to honor the Lord more. I am remembering what he did for me. And so I want to honor him more. And so we've been, we've been looking at, notice this, our goal has been to understand the meaning of the Lord's Supper and God's purpose for it in our lives. Fill that in if you haven't. Um, fill that in. The meaning of it. What is the meaning of it? That's what we've been looking and studying. And we, we're seeing that God has purposes. Why has he given the church the Lord's Supper? And very often we are confused about some of those things. We've been looking at what the Bible shows. Number one, we said a few weeks ago, the Old Testament origin of the Lord's Supper was that God's deliverance of his people from Egypt when death passed over, fill that in, passed over the homes of God's people that had the blood of the lamb applied over the doorway. So this was the great Passover. Number two, God commanded his people to annually remember his rescue, his rescue from Egypt by the Passover meal. Well, fast forward 2,000 years and you come to Christ. And Jesus and his disciples as Jews are celebrating what we call the last Passover supper. And this is the night before his crucifixion. And so Jesus is saying, the lamb that was pictured back in Egypt, the lamb that has been remembered by God's people for 2,000 years, I am the lamb, he is saying. I am going to the cross. All of the lambs that have been slain for the last 2,000 years in faith are all pointing to Jesus. And Jesus is going, is going to lay down his life. Now, the church has been called to remember Jesus' death. Lotus here, number four, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Fill in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That is an important passage for you to remember where the Lord's Supper shows up. We studied that two weeks ago. And it makes clear that true Christians cannot live, fill it in, wicked lives and claim salvation with Christ at his table of sacrifice. What he's saying is, oh, you may get away with it in front of people, but you're not going to get away with it in front of God. I mean, the picture that we see very clearly, Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says, look, you've been loving the world. You're, you're, you're there in Corinth, you claim Christ, you show up for church, and you are in love with the world and you think you're honoring God. You're offering sacrifices to idols while you're also saying that you're offering sacrifices to God. 
Now, I want you to notice here in this 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and last week we looked at this. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot break the bread and eat the bread of the Lord and eat the bread of demons. You cannot do this. Before God, it does not work. You may deceive yourself for a while, but you will find that this is not true. And so this rebuke went to the heart of the Corinthians. Look in number five here. Last week we noticed that 1 Corinthians chapter 11, so this is the next chapter, so right, right in line he's going on, makes clear that the Lord's Supper is a few things, and I want you to remember these from last week. Number one, it's the foundation of true unity and fellowship of the church. It's the foundation of true unity and fellowship of the church. Now, there's a lot of churches, you know what their foundation of unity and fellowship is? The concrete foundation of the building. They share the same building, and that's about as far as it goes. They have the same place that they worship in, and that's what makes them a church. They don't know one another. They're not involved in one another's lives. They're not celebrating the gospel together truly. They're living a religion of good works as they come together individually, remain in their individuality, hear some nice points in a poem, and leave feeling better about themselves. And the only thing that they really share is the street address of where they meet. Now, my friends, that is not at all what the New Testament pictures The real picture of the New Testament is is that we have this tremendous common denominator that that cannot be seen with human eyes in itself. It is faith in Jesus Christ and what he did 2,000 years ago on the cross for any sinner who will come to him. And so we come together as sinners rejoicing in the same Savior. And that becomes what makes us brothers and sisters. That's what becomes to make us aunts and uncles in Christ and nephews and nieces in Christ. That's what brings the family of God together. It's this table, it's this confession that the ground at the cross is level ground. There's none that are better than others. The ground at the cross is all found in the unity of Jesus' sacrifice for us and the gift of faith that we have in him. So the true unity of the church is not the address. It's not even the way you look or your side of town. The true unity of the church is the table of the Lord. Notice the next one here. The table of the Lord is also the time to carefully remember the death of Christ. We saw that very clearly. The sole instruction that the Lord Jesus gave when he was there on the night before his crucifixion was what? Remember. When you eat the cup, when you eat the bread, remember. When you drink the cup, remember what I have done for you. That is the, that is the main purpose of this is that we would, you see, human beings are just prone to forget. We're f- prone to forget important things. Important things. I mean, I, I, there, how many times do you go through life and you go, man, did I do that? I can't remember if I did that. I mean, sometimes you can do that about big things. I mean, there's sometimes I'll, my head will be so strong in something else, working on something else, and I'll turn around and look at something as, as important as, did we pay our taxes yet? I mean, that's kind of important. You get in trouble if you don't pay your taxes. 
And I'm sitting there about, Marcy, did we pay? And she goes, yes, 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 we took care of it. Okay. You know, we, we, we can forget important things. I want you to notice here with me that we are called to remember the great sacrifice of Christ. Number three on this, underneath number five, the third bullet point is, the Lord's Supper is the place of either personal examination or judgment of sin. We saw that very clearly last week, that you are called to examine yourself before partaking of this, of this table. And the greatest way that you can know whether or not it is sin forgiven is this question, is it sin forsaken? I mean, the way we really know that our sin is forgiven is that it's sin that has been forsaken. That's called repentance. We turn away from our sin, and we look to God. We don't just acknowledge it to Him and say, yep, God, I did that again. Sorry, sorry about that. Um, I'm sure I'm thankful you died on the cross. That's, it's how convenient for me, as the American gospel film says. We are called to turn away from the things that God brings before us and to look to the beauty of Christ and His forgiveness of our sins, to rejoice in that great truth. The fourth thing that we saw in this last week was that the Lord's Supper is not to be taken lightly. You see, the Corinthian people were taking the supper lightly. Some were coming early, having their meal and even getting drunk, and then others would come later, they would have less, and then maybe others, the poor of the poor, would come later and have nothing to eat, there would be nothing left for them. There would be no, you know, then they are supposedly coming together to remember the great unifying factor of the church. And the Apostle Paul comes down hard on that. He says, you're taking flippantly the table of the Lord. You know, our church should give attention each time that we do observe the table of the Lord. We should give careful attention to that and not take it lightly. So that's where we've been. We've been looking at what does it mean, where did it come from, the Passover celebration. Jesus fulfills that um, and holds up that cup on the night before he sheds his blood. His blood is shed for our sins, and he says, this is the great fulfillment. And now this morning, I want you to look at the grand finale, not necessarily of this series because we can talk about the Lord's Supper for a long time. And we we certainly will from time to time. We are going to deal with this on an ongoing basis. But I want you to see this morning this little phrase, this little phrase that says, um, until he comes. So we're looking this morning at the glorious return and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And um, we get this idea from our passage last week where it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26. Look what it says. Let's read this passage out loud together. 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26. It's on the screen in front of you or on your page. Let's read it. Look what it says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, notice there that that phrase, it does not say you proclaim the Lord's death, period. That would be sad if that's where it ended. That would would leave a great deal 
out of the picture of God's salvation. It's not only that he died for us 2,000 years ago, but it's this picture too, that he is coming again. And in his coming again, we see the glorious nature of his true salvation. Just to be clear, notice this with me, that the first coming of Christ, maybe some of you are saying, I'm kind of new to all this. When you talk about the second coming, what does that mean? Well, I I want everybody to be on the same page this morning. And for those those of you who are new to studying the Bible, these these next few minutes are going to be very helpful to you. And for those of you who have been studying the Bible all your life, this will be also very encouraging to you as we rejoice in the truth. But notice this, the first coming of Christ was as a babe in humility and headed for what? The cross. This is the Christmas story. And this is the story of the life of Christ. And this is the great account of his going to the cross and going to the grave and being raised again. That's the first coming. 33 years on the earth. Very short time on the earth. And yet he only took 33 years and in fact three years of preaching and then laying down his life to be the Messiah of God. Look at the next part. Then there's the second coming of Christ. And the second coming of Christ will be the returning king in victory and glory. You see, he's, he's coming not as a babe, but he's coming as the victor. He's coming as the conquering king. And what does he conquer? He conquers sin and death for his people, for those who are his. And there is no rival that can stand before him. He is truly the victorious king. Now, when we talk about the second coming, the Bible speaks of the second coming eight times more than the first coming. We've often looked at the passages of the Old Testament and even references in the New Testament of the first coming of Christ. But when you look at how many times the Bible talks about the second coming, his return, it's eight times more. That's that's very inspiring to me. Notice this, 17 of the 39 books of the Old Testament talk about the second coming of Christ. 23 of the 27 books of the New Testament talk about the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ. Notice this, Jesus himself referred to his second coming 21 different times. This is important. Now, it's interesting to me that um, people are sometimes divided on how they feel about the second coming. When we talk about that, there are some who are enthralled and I mean, they would, they would climb over a barbed wire fence to hear a sermon on the second coming of Christ. I mean, they, they, would, they would do whatever it takes to get there to hear that. And others sometimes tend to shy away and are, you know, for, for whatever reason, that's, that's pretty scary to them. It concerns them. It, it frightens them. Well, this morning, I want us to be able to see this. Look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear what? A second time. Not to deal with sin, but look what it says. To save those who are what? 
eagerly waiting for him. Now, my friend, I think I would move your hesitancy to eagerness. If you tend to be hesitant about considering the things that are to come, if somehow that brings more fear than faith, and if that brings more dread than hope, then something's wrong in your understanding. Something's wrong in your theology. Something is wrong in your experience with the Lord. And we want to help you get that right. We want to help you see it. And that's why we're teaching the Bible. That's why we're teaching what the true gospel is and what you can believe and know to be true by God's Spirit sealing it and confirming it in your heart. You can know that you know that you know that you have God through Christ Jesus. That you're right with God through Christ Jesus. One of the great things that you can do this week is look at the little book of Jude in the back, verses 14 and 15, and look at the book of Daniel in the Old Testament and the book of Matthew in Matthew 24 this week. Notice those references there that are talking about those who are eagerly waiting for him. In fact, Jesus gave a very, very important parable in Matthew 25. Circle that down there at the bottom. Underneath Hebrews 9.28, you see 25 verses 1 through 13. Circle that. I would highly encourage you to go and to read that parable that talks about the anticipation of his return. You see, instead of being afraid or instead of being somewhat doubtful or or somewhat confused by the return of Christ, I want to give you at least four themes that should come to mind when you hear the term, the return of Christ, or the second coming of Christ. The first term I want to give you is faithfully waiting. I want to encourage you, when you think about this return of Christ, you can ask yourself, am I faithfully waiting? That's what we see over and over again as presented in Matthew 25, Hebrews chapter 9, and the whole book of 2 Peter. Circle that. Where it says 2 Peter, you say there's no reference after that because I mean the whole letter of 2 Peter. The whole letter of 2 Peter is wait faithfully. Wait expectantly. Don't wait in such a way that when he comes, you're ashamed. Don't love the world thinking, well, when I hear the trumpet sound and I see the flash of light, I'll turn my affections away from my car and my house and my Instagram and blah, 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 everything else in this world. I'll turn it to Christ at that instant because the Bible says it will be too late. I remember at South Broward High School, I had Coach Griffin. He was from Georgia. He was an African-American fellow, and he was one of my favorite teachers I've ever had. He would get us out on the football. He, he, he coached. He, he coached two or three different sports, but he also taught P.E., and he would get us out there, and we'd be doing calisthenics, and while we were doing calisthenics and, and kind of stand up, and we'd take a breather and rest for a minute, he, about once a week, would go into a speech. And he would say it like this. Don't get caught with your pants down. Well, the first time I heard it, I was wondering, what is that about? And he said, don't get caught with your pants down. 
And he would say, the Lord is coming, and you better know him. This is in a public high school. He didn't care. He said, I have a little bit of time with these students, and I don't tell them. He said, I can't get to know them and not tell them the most important thing they can ever know. And I know that that's a difficult thing in this day and age. And I know that some of you would be tarred and feathered as soon as you did that. But Mr. Griffin had made his decision. And he simply, without question, talked about this. He would say, in a twinkling of an eye, he will come. And you will either be with him or not with him. I loved that man. You see, friends, we can be faithfully waiting upon Christ. And that kind of leads into the second one of what Coach Griffin was getting at is we need to understand and we need to have in our theme that this is a sudden surprise. There won't be a warning. People won't know. It's not going to be advertised beforehand other than the signs that we see and the fulfillment of Scripture. But no man knows the day or the hour. God has been very careful to make that very, very clear. So as soon as someone starts telling you the day or the hour, you can go, well, that's not it. Because the Bible says no man knows the day or the hour. So just rest assured. Friends, don't be a gullible Christian that goes along with somebody's elaborate number scheme or somebody's elaborate spiritual scheme or somebody's elaborate prophetic prophetic political scheme. No one knows the day or the hour. The point is not that we know the day or the hour. The point is that we be faithful and ready. Because he will come, the scripture says, when he is not expected. Now there's 1 Thessalonians, Revelation 16, Matthew 24, Zechariah 14, Acts 1. I want to encourage you, go look at those. Go study that. It's going to be a surprise. There's going to be two men walking up a hill, and suddenly one is gone. There's going to be a husband and a wife laying in bed, and suddenly one of them is gone. I mean, there is a very sudden coming when the return of the Lord comes. Notice the next one. The vindicating rescue for the believing righteous. The vindicating rescue for the believing righteous. That's what we've just been singing about. And what we see is this, is that Jesus is coming and he is going to vindicate his own. They've been thought of as fools. They have been thought of as as the least of the world. And what we're going to see is that those who are in Christ are going to be vindicated. Vindicated even from their sin and most importantly from their sin. So, so notice here, vindicating rescue for, what did I call them? The believing righteous. That's the only way that they are righteous, by the way, is that they believe upon Christ. You see, they're not righteous in their own merits. They're righteous in believing in the Savior who died for them. In fact, just no, listen to these words. In Jude one twenty one, and you can circle that down there at the end of that line of scriptures, it says in Jude one twenty one, keep yourselves in the love of God as you await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Such a beautiful statement. Keep yourselves in the love of God as you wait. That means don't go love the world. Love God 
as you await him to bring you into eternal life. And then notice the last one there. When you hear the return of Christ, you should think of terrifying judgment. Terrifying judgment for the unbelieving wicked. And don't flip the shape to the sheet. I want you to notice this. The terrifying judgment. My friends, we have just been studying the gospel uh, that we see throughout the book of Micah. And we've studied it in Hosea. That there is indeed the great wrath of God that is poured out upon sin and all who reject Messiah. My friends, we are called to not live in that terrifying judgment if we are in Christ, but to be saved from that terrifying judgment through Christ. And so when we think about the return of Christ, these are the things that we should recognize. The Bible speaks of it greatly, Old Testament and New Testament, and we have a guidance on how we should view it in the great grace of Christ. Notice the next part here. What about this wedding thing? What is this about a wedding? Some of you are saying, you all talk about weddings sometimes. You talk about brides and you talk about bridegrooms. What's that all about? Well, this morning, I want you to see that this table is talking about that. It's talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is important for you to, to gain in your Christian understanding in your theology. Notice this and fill this in. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are not just remembering the past. And when we talk about the past, what do we mean? The cross, right? The death of Christ. So put that out there to the side. Put in parentheses the cross, the death of Christ. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not just remembering the past, but we're also, fill it in, tasting the future. This table allows us to taste what's coming. This table allows us to remember that there's another feast that is coming. You see, this is a feast. This is the idea of a a celebration of something, the remembrance of something important. And here we see that this is a taste of what is to come. Now, um, yesterday, Marcella and Carlos got married, and it was a beautiful afternoon. And they had come together just gloriously in saying, we, we know that God has called us to be married, and so they have waited uh, for one another. And uh, at this time yesterday, they were ready to enter into the beautiful vows of a man and a woman becoming married and um, uh, wedded together. And then after that wedding, there was a feast. There was music, and there was uh, food, and there was fellowship, and there was joy celebrating this glorious thing of God providing a husband and a wife to this couple, to, to one another. So I want you to notice this on your outline this morning, that God knows what he's doing in his design. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27, in Genesis chapter 2, and in multiple other places in the Bible, as you see these references here, God made us male and female in his image. God made us male and female in his image. He had a very particular design. 
And in that particular design, which is spoken of not only in the Old Testament, but also repeated in the New Testament over and over again, he knew what he was doing. Now, even this, think about this, we are made in his image and for his glory. When we come in our society now to question all of that, when we come in our society now to confuse that issue of male and female, being made in his image, and to question what we see as the whole society, and in fact, much of the world, not all of the world, but most of the world that is drinking that in and taking that in, they, they're playing into Satan's great attack on the image of God. God's image is what we are made in, male and female. And when we start to say a male is not a male, female is not a female, and there's, you can go back and forth, that, that's a big part of it you now, in transgender, you can go back and forth. Now, all of these various issues that, that is very prevalent in the spirit of this age, I want you to just understand that this is all just part of a, a raging attack on God's design. That's, that's what this is. Notice the next part. God gave us earthly marriage. This is so important for you to understand. God gave us earthly marriage to show us committed love. He gave it to us to show us what committed love looks like. Yesterday when Carlos and Marcella made their vows to one another and came together, and, and for many of you, as you came into marriage, that, or your parents came into marriage, listen to this. The beautiful picture was, is that God has made us in such a way that He is showing us our relation ultimately to Him. That marriage was given to us, we didn't come up with that as mankind. God gives us marriage, and God gives us marriage not to be pulled apart, not to be torn asunder. What God has joined together, let not man tear apart. That's what the Scripture says, Old Testament and New Testament. And so when we see this, it's because He wants us to see what kind of love He has for us and the bonding that He desires between heaven and earth. And so when we tear marriage apart on an earthly thing between a husband and a wife, what we're doing is we are destroying the illustration that God gave us that He will never destroy our relationship to Him. And it cannot be destroyed. And that's why He stands on the side of us learning what committed love looks like. Now, I had you fill in the word committed there because a lot of people are confused about what love is. Love to many people is a feeling. It's an emotion. It's something that you want to receive, but not necessarily know how to give. Committed love is this picture of a love that goes beyond emotion, a love that goes beyond the way I feel to the decision that has been made. It says, I have made my, up my mind. I have decided by God's grace that I will stay with you. And that's what God does with us. He commits his love to us, and then he fulfills it. And how far does he fulfill it? All the way to the cross. 
all the way to the cross of Calvary, he lays down his life. He says, let me show you what committed love looks like. And the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who spoke the stars into existence and all of creation, lays down on a wooden cross in a Roman territory called Israel, and he allows people to, draw, to drive nails through his feet and hands. He said, this is what commitment looks like. At that instant, he could have obliterated the world. But instead, he said, let me show my people what love looks like. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated what committed love looks like. So notice this and fill this in. Every earthly marriage, every earthly marriage represents the eternal marriage between God and his people. That's why marriage is such a big deal to God, and that's why it should be such a big deal to us. And this is throughout the Bible. This is not an obscure passage. In fact, this is in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, and it's all the way, as we'll see in just a moment, in Revelation the very end of the Bible. So from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible, we see that marriage is a picture of what God has given to us. Every earthly marriage represents the eternal marriage between God and his people. This is why, and we should say ding, 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 ding. Everybody pay attention to this next part underneath this bullet point. This is why the church, that's God's people, is called the bride we are called the bride, and Christ is the bridegroom. This is the great picture that he has given us. So if you're ever wondering why did he make us male and female, if you're ever wondering why did he give us marriage, and why is marriage such a big deal to him? Why is divorce such a problem to him? I mean, what, why is it that we have to learn to stick it out? We have to learn to love one another? Because this earthly example is given that we might know what God has designed for us. Now, I want you to, your eyes to fall down to the first big box that's on the page here, the meaning of marriage. This is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 33. Now, I want to just encourage you that if you're um, uh, scared to death of biblical principles and biblical standards, um, just you want, may want to put on your seatbelt right now because there's some things here in this passage that People in this world that do not, do not understand what they mean and how they fit into God's scheme of things, they, they look at that and they go, okay, that is cracked out. That is absolutely crazy. But let me remind you that this is the glorious Word of God that is so good, and He knows exactly what He's doing. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, and then notice where the emphasis is here, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I I know that that just causes, you know, blindness for some people immediately as soon as they read that, but they... They've not yet taken the time to say, Lord, what do you mean by this? And how is this, how is this good and how is this right? Well, notice the greater burden is placed upon you. think that's a big burden for wives. The greater burden is actually on the husbands, but notice the real thing that we're going to be looking here for is not husband and wife 
But the real thing that we're going to be looking for here is Christ and the church. Look at this in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. And then what does it say here? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's the truth of who he is. Verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. So it's the idea of of she has on a dress, she has a covering, and that covering is white as snow. It's not dirty. There's not an imperfection. There's no wrinkle in this covering. And that covering is the great picture of Christ and what he has done for the church. That he completely washes us clean. And notice what it says. That she might be holy and without blemish. You see, this is the salvation of God. In verse 28, here's again that burden. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. You say, how much does a guy love his own body? Well, I mean, he steps on a sand spur, and what happens when you step on a sand spur? You love your foot suddenly a great deal. Suddenly, you're doing everything you can to rescue your foot because it hurts. You know, whatever it is, whatever portion of your body, when you, when you think about how much do we love ourselves, how much do we take care of, we feed ourselves, we clothe ourselves, we comb our, you know, we, we do all of these things. We, we take care of ourselves. And this is the picture that, man, in the same way as Christ loved the church, husbands, love your, as you, as you love your own bodies even, love your wife. Look what it says at the end of verse 28. He who loves his wife loves himself. Why? Because the two are one. That's what marriage is. The two become one. When you're taking care of her, you're taking care of yourself. This is a beautiful intimacy that God has designed for us. And we see that this, we're seeing where it goes here. Look at verse 29. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Now look at verse 31, quotes from the Old Testament. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's from Genesis chapter 2. And then look at verse 32, and here's the main passage that I want you to see. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the picture is this. God's given us, male and female, God's given us earthly, earthly marriage in order to give us a living example of what he wants. And then some of you would say, well, that's really scary because my earthly example is not very good and it's not very fulfilling and it's really hard. Well, my friends, that's because of sin. That's because of our sin. That's because of our broken world. That's because of our flesh that rages out against. But what we start to see as we study the Bible is is that God's design is to come live within us and His design is to come cause us to truly love one another and to truly serve one another. And listen to this, and to learn what committed love means. 
And I know that there's many in this room that you would say, that's a glorious thing because I love my spouse dearly. I cannot imagine my life without her. I cannot imagine my life without him. And what a beautiful thing that that is. That's what, as we begin to walk with God, as we, as we truly learn what He has designed in this, we start to see that we have this earthly example that shows us utter intimacy with God, that that is His grand design. And so, let's go back up there to the top of the page in the middle of there where it says that every earthly marriage represents the eternal marriage between God and His people. That's why the church, God's people, is called the bride, and Christ is the bridegroom. Look at the next one here. Currently, the church is engaged. How sweet. The church is engaged. The wedding hasn't happened yet. Oh, sure, Jesus has saved His people from their sins. Jesus has come and given His life that we may live. But the church is engaged, and we await the bridegroom's return and our wedding. Yes, that's where this is all going. It's all going to the great marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus returns again and He brings home His bride to His house, this is the grand plan of God that His people would be saved from their sins and saved from the ravages of the earth and a fallen world. And all of that results in a great and glorious marriage supper of the Lamb. Look down at the second box that is here. Some of you have never seen this before, and I want you to see it. Revelation chapter 19. This is John's vision. The book of Revelation is glorious. John is given a vision from God, and he writes it down. He was living on the Isle of Patmos out in the Mediterranean Sea, and there he is, and he receives this vision of the things that are to come, and he writes it down. And look at verse 6. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out. And look what it cries out. Hallelujah, which means praise be to God. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Notice this. And His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. You see, that's the clothing of Christ. He comes. It was granted to her that. It was given to her that. That is a gift. That is a gift from God. That's a gift from Christ. That's a gift from his sacrifice for us. He clothes us with bright linen. He covers our sins. He covers our blackness within our heart that is, that is decayed and evil within us. And he washes us white as snow, pure and clean. This is the picture. He comes and rescues us with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. He's, he's saved us for good works. And then we live in those good works. We're not doing those good works in order to be saved. We've been saved for those works that give glory to God. Now look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this. Read it out loud together. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are are the true words of God. 
Now, look at that. The marriage supper of the Lamb is the glorious picture of where this table leads. This is where it goes. And this is the great power of it all. So, God has given us this table. God has given us this, what we call an ordinance. That means an order. He's commanded us to remember this. And each time that we remember this, we are seeing not only the past of the cross, but we're seeing the future of the marriage supper of the Lamb. We are seeing the coming Messiah who's going to come and rescue His people out of this present age of sin and sickness and death and hardship. This is, notice up there at the top, um, above that, the last bullet point there that's at the, uh, in the middle part there. Not only are we engaged, but the marriage supper of the Lamb is the glorious feast in heaven when God and His people will finally be together, and look what it says, with no sin, separation, sickness, sorrow, strife, or death. So did you fill that in? Here's the great plan of God is that we will be together with Him. This is where it all leads. This is the grand plan of God. Now, I want you to see on the screen in front of you that passage that is under that bullet point up there that says that we are finally going to be together with no sin, separation, sickness, sorrow, strife, or death. I want you to see this. At the very end of the book of Revelation, in the last two chapters, we see this vision. Look what it says where this is all leading. Revelation 21 and verse 5 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared, here's that imagery again, as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, listen to what it says. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And then look at the last part. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. What does it say at the end? For the former things have passed away. Now, we still live in the former things, right? We still live where there is sorrow, where there are tears, where there is death. We still live where there is mourning and crying. But this table reminds us that a day is coming that we have been redeemed out of all of that. This, this table reminds us that we can hold on in faith for the one who promises to set us free and to raise us up. So the glorious nature of this table is for those who know this Redeemer. Notice this. You know, yesterday when... Um, when we were in the, in the wedding ceremony, uh, it came time for the engagement ring 
to have an actual wedding ring added to it. But I, I was there, and I reached out in my pocket, and I, I was holding the rings for them, and I pulled out the first one um, that Carlos was putting on her finger. And as he went to put it, I was just looking at her engagement ring that she's been wearing since the day they got engaged. And as I was looking at that engagement ring, I was thinking about this table because that's, that's the promise. Notice this with me. Like an engagement ring, the Lord's Supper proclaims, remember it says, it proclaims His death till He comes. It proclaims committed love. That's what it proclaims. This Lord's Supper, each time, it reminds us of the committed love of God, so committed that He goes to the cross. And like an engagement ring, the Lord's Supper proclaims, this one is taken. This one is taken. This one has a mate. This one is connected. This one is not available to anyone else. You know, Carlos needed to be especially careful with that with Marcella because she's so wonderful. He didn't want her to get away. He put a ring on her finger so everybody knew she's taken. And you know, that's what the Lord does with us. He gives us the Lord's Supper, and this is part of that which states that for those who are believing in Christ, we have the glorious promise that we are the betrothed of the Lord and that He is coming again. Notice the last one here. Like an engagement ring, the Lord's Supper proclaims a future joy awaits. Marcella and Carlos have been running around the office for the last few weeks, and every time you look at them, they just smile and giggle. I mean, they've been looking forward to this wedding. They, every time you say anything about it, a big smile comes across their face. And why? Because of the joy of coming together and the gift that God has given in one another. And so now we see that for us, this table reminds us that sin is going to be put away. Sorrow is going to be put away. Sickness and death are going to be put away. And all of those things will become the former things. As God is with His people, finally and forever. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me for prayer? Holy Father, we want to carefully remember what this table represents. Indeed, over these weeks, we've looked at the fact that it represents your great death, your great sacrifice, the innocent Lamb of God for the sinful world, sins of the world. Not just the sins of the world out there theoretically, but Lord, for our own foolishness, for our sins. Friend, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want to invite you to examine yourself. The first question you must ask is, do I believe that Jesus 
is the Messiah? Do I believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of my heart? Do I believe that Jesus is the one who came and laid down his life and rose again and that he took my sins? Have you come to trust in Jesus? Is your trust in yourself? Is your trust in your good works? Is your trust in being a good person? Or have you turned away from that false belief and put your faith in Jesus? That's the first great question. And for those who have trusted in Jesus, the great picture is this, that over and over and over again, the waves of his grace wash away our sins. As we look to him in faith, as we cry to him for help, he comes and strengthens us for good works. He comes and strengthens us for obedience. And we can say, praise be to God. There is a gracious Savior who walks with me in this life. So friends, examine yourselves. Are there sins that you've been holding on to? They have no place in the Christian's heart. This morning I invite you to confess them to God, to forsake them, and to trust in Him. Lord, we thank you for this table. We pray now that as we observe it, that you would be speaking to our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.